Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I, uh, I left for college, uh, went to college at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, and uh, that's where Megan and I met. And uh, we actually ended up getting married a, a month after graduation in uh, 2003. Uh, July 19th of 2003, so we're getting ready to celebrate our 20-year uh, anniversary this summer, but my very first memory, like literally the first memory I have uh, as a student at Westmont is um, from orientation weekend, you know, the weekend where the students, uh, the, the new students show up a few days before, <clears throat> excuse me, and get oriented to school. And uh, I remember walking into uh, the Page Hall um, large meeting room. And uh, the first thing I remember seeing was Megan. Across the dormitory, Megan was cackling, big smile, uh, you know, making jokes with our uh, residence director to be. I still remember she had on denim overall shorts <clears throat> with a yellow tank top and her famous rainbow sandals. And uh, I remember, like, I literally remember, I literally remember um, thinking to myself, that's just what I'm looking for. <laughs> uh, two days later, we had a student barbecue um, at the beach, and there she was. Uh, she was participating in some sort of uh, obstacle course slash relay game uh, in the sand and the waves. And um, she was electric. Red bikini, bathing suit, lean and mean, beachy, sun-kissed hair and skin, running through the waves and, and rolling in the sand. She was better than Baywatch. I'm dating myself with that reference, but she was fully alive, vibrant, laughing, smiling, athletic, beautiful in every way for me. I was hooked. I was in love, as they say, from that moment on. We, uh, we dated um, off and on over our four years at Westmont. That's another story that we could tell later. Uh, finally getting serious during our junior year and... and uh, Let's just say Megan had a ring by spring uh, of her senior year. <clears throat> um, that, that, that picture that I just shared of our early uh, relationship is uh, a great picture of the fall in love narrative. You're familiar? That sounded pretty Hollywood, uh, didn't it? Um, you know, and for me, in many ways, it was love at first sight. But how many of you know that, that falling 
in love and staying in love are two different things. Completely different things. I'm sure you can relate. The picture of our relationship that I, that I just shared with you, it, it's just that, like just a picture, like a, a moment in time. Uh, the reality is that uh, as Meg and I continued um, in our relationship and on into marriage, um, there's nothing glamorous about it. Um, I mean, yes, I'm still head over heels uh, for her, um, and she's been resolutely committed to me, but staying, that's a good way to say it, I thought, but staying together has proved to be way more difficult than getting together. Who's with me so far? <laughs> You know, the reality is that marriage has been humiliatingly difficult at times. We were both used to being good at things that we did. It's really hard to be good at marriage, we've found, and maybe you can relate. I, I, and I just, I just want you to know this morning that we know what it's like to feel stuck in marriage. We know what it's like to feel like giving up. We know what it's like to feel discouraged, despairing even hopeless. There have been times uh, when our marriage was on the brink, so to speak. We've had to fight like heck. We've had to fight like heck, not, not with each other, but for each other and our marriage in order to honor the till death do us part commitment that we made uh, to, to one another. You know, as a matter of fact, there, there were times where we weren't sure we could do this. We weren't sure we could do this church because we weren't sure if we could do marriage. So uh, you see us now, and uh, we're happily married through the thick and thin. Of course, this week, as I was getting ready to preach on marriage, um, you know, we had a couple hard conversations, wouldn't you guess? There were some harm moments this week uh, as Satan came after us yet again. Anyway, I, I say all this just to say that I, I don't feel like an expert on this topic this morning. And I know that there's a lot swimming in this room when it comes to the, the idea of marriage. You know, some of you even, I mean, you know, some of you have been divorced. Some of you want to be married. Some of you want a different marriage. Some of you maybe had a really rough week in marriage. Like, I, I get that, you know? And so, uh, yet we come to this teaching of Jesus this morning. And while I'm not an expert on marriage, I know who is. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going we're gonna to put our lives under the microscope of Scripture. We're going to say, okay, God, we trust you. Marriage is your idea. It's good. And we're going to do our best to do what you say. And, uh, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? Because uh, I say Jesus is an expert on marriage, but Jesus was never married. I sometimes wish that he was, you know. In fact, that's like one of my main wishes about Jesus, that he'd been married and had kids. It would have been really helpful to have him, you know, model how to do that. Anyways, I guess he knew better. But even Jesus isn't teaching from his own experience. I think this is important because so many times we choose to live in a certain way because of our experience of life. 
If marriage has been really bad up until this point, that experience may drive the way that you see marriage. Do you know what I'm saying? But we have to go beyond experience and we have to look to a real expert here, right? Sometimes our experience lies to us, doesn't tell us the truth about God's good design. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm quoting Jesus a little bit today. Um, We're also going to uh, um, take a look at what the Apostle Paul said about marriage. I found it so fascinating that the two experts for biblical marriage, Jesus and Paul, neither one of them uh, was married. So neither one of them are speaking from their own experience, rather about God's good design. They're going to the expert to scripture. So this is, this is helpful, I think, because uh, today's teaching is really difficult. If you, if you read beyond verse 6, and, and even the, the question that's posed here, and, and maybe even the heading in your Bible might say that this, is, this teaching is about divorce. Oh, man, that's even harder to talk about than marriage, is it not? Um, it it kind of just makes me squirm on the inside to even think about uh, talking about it. Um, and, and I just think, I, I just want to honor you this morning. I want to start by honoring you. Look, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes in your marriage. I don't know what you've fought through, what you've battled through, maybe what you've had to put up with. I just, I don't know. I'm not an expert on your life. I'm not an expert on your marriage. But I do know this, that this morning we come to the scriptures and we, we turn to the one who created us to the one who is an expert on marriage, to the one who's an expert on your marriage. Jesus knows everything about your marriage, about my marriage. Imagine for just a minute, the divine all-knowing God inspired these words for you and for me. And he knew the week that we'd have, he knew the story that's been written in your life up until now, none of this has caught him by surprise. He knew we'd be sitting right here ready to learn this morning. And this same God who offers us his good design, he also offers us comfort. I, wanna, I want you to hear that this morning, that there's, there's comfort for those of us who've experienced pain in marriage. We don't need to feel ashamed. We just need to bring our hurts to him. So he knows what our experience has been. And look, this God is the good shepherd. We've got to see him as a good father, as a good shepherd this morning. In whom we have everything we need. The good shepherd, the good father who supplies for us everything that we need. This is powerful. Sometimes we come to God and we try to explain things away. Like he, he doesn't know, he couldn't have known what I've walked through. We use our experience to get ourselves out of the good design explained in scripture. We can do this, but he's a, I think when we do that, sometimes we do that out of this sense of not really believing in his goodness. There's like such a strong temptation. I think maybe the primary attack of the enemy is to tempt us away from God's goodness, but he's a good shepherd. And this morning, it's my prayer and my hope that he would lead us beside still waters, that he would make us lie down in green pastures. So this good shepherd, he's led us to this passage this morning. 
no surprises, all by design. We're here together. And perhaps, you know, you're, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death this morning. Perhaps your heart is uh, sinking as we broach the topic. Maybe you saw that written on the board and you wanted to walk right back out the front door. I think we've all felt like that at times. But I just want to start by agreeing together that God in his sovereignty has led us to this moment together. Together to this moment. You know, I'm looking out and this is a morning, kind of a rare morning where we all know each other. There's no one new this morning. And uh, I just want to receive that as God's divine kindness to us this morning. You know, we're here for each other this morning as we receive this word. It's really actually beautiful. It makes me want to cry that God's given us each other to live out his good design so let me start with a little context with where we're at because it's been a couple weeks and I, I find it uh, not at all ironic that the very last thing I taught on was forgiveness. And today I teach uh, about marriage. How many of you know that you need to be really good at forgiving? Babe, have you reached 70 times seven yet? <laughs> I'm gonna need a few more. I'm gonna need a few more anyways. Uh, It says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. So when he finished his teaching on forgiveness, remember chapter 18 was all about Jesus teaching to the congregation, the family of God. So verse uh, chapter 18, we see Jesus teaching to the family of God, how to be a family of God. And we, we saw him talk about issues like confronting sin. We saw him talk about forgiveness. How many of you know that that's, those are useful skills in a marriage? Doing a good job at confronting sin, right? How often do we do a bad job and that causes problems in our marriage? How often is the main problem in our marriage resentfulness, unforgiveness, a failure to give grace or to go again? Man, Matthew really like planned it all out when he organized this gospel. So it says that Jesus has just finished these sayings. Remember, he's leaving Galilee now. He is headed towards Jerusalem, where he'll ultimately be crucified. And I do want to give you um, some solace. I think we're going to be done with the book of Matthew next Easter. So we got one year left. (laughs) Okay, but I I charted it out, and I think that we can do it very easily. But it says in verse 2, anyways, that large crowds have followed him. And what happens when you follow Jesus? He heals you. This is powerful. Uh, I'm told that the, um, holy Moses, heal that window, Lord. I'm told that the Greek word for he healed them, uh, it it contains the root that we use uh, for the word therapy. It literally says he therapied them. Some of our marriages need some therapy this morning, but I'm telling you, we can trust in the great healer for the therapy that we need, that our marriages need. And so we come to Jesus, the healer, this morning. This powerful stuff. It says large crowds followed him. I love that about Jesus. So here we come to this teaching on marriage. And uh, I'm going to, I think, like I said already, probably I'm going to take this week to talk about marriage. Next week, we'll talk about what the Bible teaches in regards to divorce. And then we'll talk about singleness in the week to come. 
You remember a few weeks ago, Steve Whitmer came and talked about children. Uh, so this is this chapter, chapter 19, is all about the family. So we talked about the family of God in chapter 18, and now Matthew is talking about the nuclear family in chapter 19. He's going to deal with marriage, divorce, singleness, kids, and then the other big factor in a household, money, at the end of chapter uh, 19. So anyway, uh, there's a debate that's raging in the world that Jesus is living in. Uh, they, were, they were arguing about uh, one of the teachings in the Old Testament. And uh, I, I'm not going to get too far into that today because I am going to talk more thoroughly about uh, divorce. But there were two main schools of thought in um, Jewish rabbinical culture. There was uh, the school of Hillel, the rabbi Hillel. Um, who taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. He thought that was a proper interpretation of Deuteronomy, sorry, Deuteronomy 24. And then there was Shammai who said, no, 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 no. It's not just for any reason at all. There's only one reason that you could uh, divorce your wife. So this is the debate that's raging in Jesus' day. And so this is the question that leads the question that these Pharisees try to trap Jesus with. They come to him and they ask him a question. What do you say about this? You've heard that it was said, Jesus, but what do you say? So Jesus, um, he, he's not so direct to answer their question, is he? So instead of answering their question about divorce, what does he do? He talks about what is marriage? He describes what marriage actually is and how does he do it? He does it by going back to the very beginning. Page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one and two, talks about what marriage is. I love how Jesus is like, he, he, just, he just won't give in to these guys. He knows where they're headed and he just, he just skips right to where they're headed. So that's why I'm starting with marriage today. And I thought, man, it'd be kind of mean to talk about God's high standard um, and, and his teaching about divorce without talking about how can we stay married? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, that just felt like it'd be kind of brutal to, um, to talk about divorce before I talked about marriage. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, if you want to know what we think about divorce, you got to know what God thinks about marriage. So here we go. He starts in the garden, the Genesis account. And uh, I think that there's, there's three keys that we can take away from the text this morning. And I'm going to I'm going to, I mean, <laughs> talking about marriage is kind of intimidating because there's a lot to say about marriage, is there not? I mean, gosh, where do you even begin, right? Um, so I'm just going to highlight three keys that I see uh, in the text, and then we're going we're gonna to walk through each of them. So I'm going to start by giving you my three points. So uh, I want to talk about um, God's design for marriage being sexual, symbolic, and inseparable. I believe that we see in this passage that God's design for marriage is sexual, symbolic, and inseparable. And uh, I think I should pray because I feel a little weak right now. Let me pray. God, we want to hear your, uh, your heart for us. And Lord, would you help me to tell the truth this morning? And would you, um, if there's any hurt in our hearts, Lord, 
Yeah, I guess I saw a picture of a human heart with a scar on it. And I think Jesus wants to put a Band-Aid. If you got a scar on your heart, I think that Jesus wants to put a Band-Aid on your heart. And, and Lord, I'm asking that you would do that this morning so that we could receive your good word and that that scar, that wound wouldn't get in the way of receiving your good word for us, receiving your love for us, Lord. Amen. So three keys uh, to God's design for marriage. Sorry, kids. The first key is marriage is sexual. Now, I don't know. It started with an S, okay? Um, but here, here's what I mean. Um, there, there's two ways uh, or two things that I mean by this idea that marriage is sexual. The first is that it's male and female. You know what I mean in terms of like gender? Is that, can you, is that what we call that? Gender? Are you allowed? Gender's been redefined so much, you know? I, I'm just like, what is it even? Okay, yeah. So number one, it says in Genesis that, um, that marriage is male and female. The second thing uh, I mean that marriage is sexual relates to sexual intimacy. So, uh, you know, I teach sex ed in uh, middle school at times. Um, this will not be one of those mornings, but I will say the word sex several times. Um, Cooper is glaring at me right now, but I'm sorry, <laughs> sweetheart. Sorry, not sorry. So number one, number one, man and woman. Uh, and, and on its face on a Sunday morning, you know, how much do I even have to emphasize this? I mean, most of you, I don't have to go a long way to convince that marriage, as God designed it, takes place between a man and a woman. But uh, you know the world that we live in. And I, and I just thought, like, even for the kids, because I know that those of you that are younger are growing up in a culture that does not assume this. And it was even crazy, like, as I, as I searched, like, I, you know, I do some research by searching Google and whatnot. I mean, it is crazy how prevalent the idea of the normalization of multiple sexual orientations um, has become. And I, I just want to start by saying God's design was male and female. God's design was male and female, you know, and I, there's like a culture war uh, on this idea right now. Um, and uh, I, I think it's important that we like stay grounded in that. Like it's really important. So maybe it's obvious, but I think that we're going to have to fight for that one. I just want to encourage us. First and foremost, he says, uh, male and female. It says that. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. This wasn't a debate for Jesus. This is where he starts. This is his starting point. Don't you remember that from the beginning, God created them male and female? Look, you know, we, we like, our, I just feel like our culture right now is trying to throw out thousands of years of things that we've agreed upon in the name of progress. But the God-ordained reality is that he made them male and female. And we can't throw that out just because we want to be more inclusive. So we start today with an undisputable biological reality. We've been made male and female. We're not only image bearers. Of course, there's sameness. Men and women, all humans, share a lot of sameness, do we not? We both have two eyes and a nose for the most part, you know. We are, we are biologically very much similar. 
but there's this one way in which we're different. And that kind of drives some other differences as well. See, our, our sexuality, being male or female, is just like innate. It's a biological reality. We, we can't lose sight of this. And it really applies to God's design for marriage because his design is to take one male and one female and knit them together. When we deny our, our biological sex, when we, when we change our biological sex, or, or when we pursue same-sex relationships, we're violating the divine order. We're committing a foul against the way that God intended our world to work. And I think that here's the thing, and I say this, and, and hopefully we could be a church that holds on to this design, but also loves people in the place that they're at. Not by encouraging them to live however they want to live, but by pointing them to God's good design. It's not loving to allow someone to live outside of God's good design, is it? The loving thing is to point people towards God's good design. And I think that when we deny our, our own biological sex, when we, when we want to change our biological sex or pursue same-sex relationships, we're, we're violating this divine order, and we do so at our own peril. So in love for others, we've got to hold tight to the design, to the design that God intended. Now, that doesn't mean we won't struggle or face temptations in this regard. That's really important to know and to understand. Do we not face temptations to live outside God's good design for us in all kinds of ways? God's good design, truth. Anybody tempted to lie? Right? You see where I'm going with this. So we can face temptations to live outside of God's good design. This is actually just a, a result of our flawed human nature to be tempted to live outside of God's good design. So this does not mean that we hate people who don't see things the way that we do, but in love, we want to be a church that points people to God's good design. It's like, hey, we know we have a way. The scriptures have revealed to us a new way to be human. This is the whole point. Jesus came teaching, preaching, and healing. There's a new way to be human. There's a way to live as God intended. We can live in Garden of Eden-like conditions by following the ways of Jesus. We're not bigots by standing up for God's good design. We're loving as long as we act in love. So guess what? You know, there's God made us sexual beings. He made male and he made female. And guess what? Without getting into anatomy, I can say confidently that there's a fit and a function to our differences. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Anyone else thankful for that? <laughs> so let's talk a bit about that second part of the, the sexuality, the sexual nature of marriage, sexual intimacy. Now this is, uh, there, there's several components here that I want to I address in relationship to sexual intimacy, but the first is that sexual intimacy is the, like, probably the one thing I was trying to rack my brain and think of another. Like, Megan could talk to another man. She could, like, like another man. Like, hey, he's cool. She could send emails. She could work with another man. 
But if she has a sexual relationship with another man, things are broken. This is unique to the marriage relationship. Do you get what I'm saying? It's the only relationship we're designed to enjoy sexual intimacy, marriage. So it must be really important. God's design reserves the act of sex only for marriage. If you remember Matthew 5, uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? Having sex with someone that's not your wife. Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. That's because the act of sexual intimacy is designed for marriage. It's unique to marriage. I think we see in that teaching, oh, there's something really important about adultery. He even goes on to say in Matthew 5, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he's like, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Because adultery is really bad. Why? Because sexual intimacy in a marriage is really good. So to break that design order is really bad. Another thing that uh, sexual intimacy delivers in a relationship is, is both, two Ps, procreation and pleasure. I don't know if anyone grew up in, in, in a circle where sex was just for procreation. You couldn't talk about how pleasurable sex was. I grew up in a, in a church culture like that. But uh, Jesus did say, or I should say God said in the garden, uh, the creation mandate, it was to be fruitful and, and multiply. God said that to Adam and Eve. So procreation is part of sexual intimacy. But we also have a story uh, in the Song of Songs, which is basically erotic love poetry. Can you believe there's a book in the Bible that's just erotic love poetry, Jewish erotic love poetry, because sex was designed to be pleasurable. That's crazy. Sex is both for procreation and for pleasure. Like God's not a prude. He's not anti-sex. He's not anti-pleasure. He's for right use. Use by his design. Sex is really important, evidently. Procreation and for pleasure. Another thing that I want to say about the importance of sexual intimacy, and you're like, oh, I get it right here. We've got a testosterone-filled pastor going to talk about sex the entire morning. <laughs> Which wouldn't be, like, completely off, I'll say. But hopefully, uh, humbly here, I, I, I am presenting you with um, what, what the Bible teaches. And, and women, if you're sitting there already kind of ticked off, I, I'm going to get to you. Um, did you know that sexual intimacy is a bonding agent? I mean, I think that we, we kind of know that, but do you know that physiology actually gives reason for why there's such a bond created between two people and, and why sex outside of a marriage can be so damaging because the last thing you want to do is get cemented to somebody that's not your wife. That's going to be a really painful thing to separate at some point. You might do some things that you wouldn't otherwise do. So there's a physiological reason, and I'm not a scientist. I did read some scientists this week, but there's this, hormone called oxycontin, I think it's pronounced, oxycontin, 
Oxytocin, okay, thank you. Yep, Oxycontin is the drug, thank you very much. I, I knew I was mispronouncing that. So it's this, it's this hormone that leads us to the feeling of pleasure, but also interpersonal connection. And uh, you know, um, I've often been told that women like to com connect in marriage like emotionally. Have you guys been told this, that, that women are more driven to connect emotionally? Did you know that one of the reasons is because uh, women uh, have like a lot of uh, oxy oxytocin. Thank you. I cannot get that out of my head. The what? The love drug. The love drug. There we go. So women already have like 10 times more um, of this uh, love drug in their system uh, than men. In fact, during sexual climax is the only time that a man's love drug levels reach a women's, a woman's level. See, sexual intimacy is about bonding. It's about coming together. It's truly about intimacy. This was at least God's design. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've got to be thinking, yeah, but sometimes guys just like don't seem to be like into the, it for the right reasons. You could be right. But I want to talk about God's design. I want to present the case for God's good design. And, and the case is that sex binds two people together emotionally on an intimate level. So sexual intimacy is a bonding agent. The next thing I want to say comes out of 1 Corinthians 7. You could turn there if you have your own Bible. But the next thing I want to say is that sexual intimacy within a marriage according to God's good design, is mutual. It's mutual. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 7. First, I begin with the sentence that I want to punch Paul for saying. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the part we're going to throw out. <laughs> what? Paul, what are you talking about? No, that's not good. Anyways, this is what Paul thought. Verse 2. You guys aren't laughing. I thought that you might laugh at that a little bit. Verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, Paul says, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice, sexual intimacy in a marriage is mutual. Like we, we so often live with the stereotype that, that um, men want sex and women don't. But evidently, according to Paul, according to God's good design, there's mutual need. Genesis 3.16, I think, gives us some insight into why this frustration occurs. Uh, you remember after uh, Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit, uh, the snake is cursed, right? And also there's the women are told that because of this, women, you're going to have pain in childbearing. And um, it also says that there's different ways to translate it. This is one of the most uh, varyingly translated passages in Scripture. 
But the idea is that there's going to be some like disharmony between husband and wife as a result of the curse. And I think the, the fall like explains perfectly why this is just like, like, you know, I'm talking about it being mutual. I'm talking about sex being such a, a good thing. But good grief, there's a lot of frustration in this area. And I think it's because of our flawed uh, human nature. So if you're out there today and you're like, yeah, you say it's a good thing. You're saying it's supposed to be mutual. That's not been my experience. I think that the reason it's not been our experience is because of the fall, because of how we've gotten away from God's good design. And I also understand in order for something to be mutual, it takes work. And that our culture is going to constantly come uh, bring this under attack. I mean, think about this. If, if marriage is God's design for our good, and sex seems to be an area where Satan can get us off, man, why wouldn't he just come over and over and over again after it? He does not want marriages bonded together. Man, so anyways, it, it's gonna, you guys, it's going to take some work. Like, I, I totally get this. It's not super easy. And, and I want to just say that, like, there's, there's, it takes two to tango, right? And just having a strong sex drive does not mean you're doing it right. Our world is uh, totally attacking God's design for sexuality, not just in the transgender debate, not just in the homosexual debate. Through the objectification, the objectification of women at times. What's on the TV? What are commercials? What are ads telling women about sexuality? They're, they're objects in these ads, are they not? And what's on Netflix? What I see on Instagram? Culture is coming after God's good design. I um, Obviously, uh, for men in particular, but not just men, Pornography is a huge threat to sexual intimacy uh, with our wives. And uh, I was listening this week to uh, a pastor up in Oregon, and he said that, and I I had heard that this was true before, but that currently right now, uh, singles are less sexually active than they've ever been in in the last 50 years since they began measuring. They're less sexually active. Why? pornography. Man, what a threat to sexual intimacy, lust culture. This is why Jesus said, look, if you even think about a woman lustfully, it's just as if you've committed adultery. I had a friend in college. uh, My friend's name was Nate Lynch. He was a great godly guy. I remember hanging out with him one time. We were like accountability partners at one point. We would like pray for each other and confess our sin to one another. And I remember this phrase that he told me. He's like, because we were talking about the temptation to lust. And he said, you know, I had a teacher tell me one time, um, uh, if you want to ruin your life, look at pornography. I was like, man, those are true words right there. And I would just say to you guys, if you want to ruin your life, look at pornography. But if you don't want to ruin your life, if you want to save your life, if you want to have true intimacy with your someday spouse or your current spouse, you gouge that eye out. You do whatever you have to do to rid yourself of the temptation. It's screwing up our intimacy because we're misusing. And to the women, I I just want to reiterate that you're, you're not an object. 
This teaching does not make women an object for the sexual gratification of men. That is not what this teaches. Notice the mutuality. Is that a word? I'm making up all kinds. I'm doing a lot with the English language this morning. There's, there's mutualness. That's another word I just made up. I know that's not a word. <laughs> sexual intimacy in marriage is designed to be mutual. That was like a mind. I'm like, whoa. Wow. Hmm. So women, you're, you're not an object. Our culture has made you women at times into objects of sexual gratification. And sometimes I see women like living into this because it, it does get you attention. It can get you money and fame even. But I just want to say like, that's not God's good design for you. You don't have to live that way. You're not an object. You've been created in God's image. You're an image bearer. You've been made a certain way to represent God. So this objectification is, it's not God's design. God's design was mutual submission in marriage. Mutual submission. This was God's design. I think men have already gotten on you, but just to say it again, lust of the eyes is adultery, and we should avoid it at all costs. If you got to get a dumb phone, if you got to stay off the internet, get a dial-up modem. Do they even make those? We should wage war against lust of the eyes. It'll destroy your intimacy with your wife. If you want to have a great sex life, you got to quit looking at dumb stuff, guys. It's not helping. It's not helping at all. If you want to honor your wife, if you want your marriage bed to flourish, you've got to wage war against lust. Your wife, men, your wife must become the sole object of your desire. The, the story in the Song of Songs, Two Lovers, this one, of, one fact that's amazing about this story is that the, the, the woman in the story does not think she's attractive. She says, I'm too dark, which was at that time being sun, uh, suntan was, I guess, a bad thing. She's like, I'm too dark. My thighs are too big. It's like an age-old conversation, evidently. Um, but but what, is the, what does her lover say about her? Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Is that true? No. She'd be the first one to tell you. But in his eyes, he trained his eyes to, to her beauty. She was his standard of beauty. Men, if you want to have an intimate relationship with your wife, your wife must become and continue to be your standard of beauty. You're altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no flaw in you. I love that. That's powerful. So marriage is not just sexual. It's also symbolic. It's a symbol. There's, there's two primary ways that marriage is a symbol. Number one, we image God as individuals, right? We're made in God's image as individuals. And God is one, but three, right? This is like Bible math. Three persons, one God. And guess what? Evidently, two persons in one marriage equals one flesh. That's what Jesus just said as he quoted Genesis. Marriage is a symbol of divine unity. Our marriages reflect the divine unity of our creator. 
That's powerful stuff. Think about what we communicate to the world through our marriages. It's powerful. It's also a representation of of how we, like God, live in community. We were made for relationship with others. And and for some, marriage will will not be your story for whatever reason, maybe by your own choice, uh, maybe through, you know, I, I don't know, like some of us don't choose the lot that comes to us, but we've all been made for relationship. It's one of the reasons the church is so powerful. We're, we're a family. We've all been made for relationship. And so marriage, it shows that we, like God, are made for relationship. The second way that marriage is a symbol is that marriage points to our union with Christ. And this is a powerful metaphor in Ephesians 5. So I'm going to go to Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul, he says this, verse 21, and I want to make sure you hear the first sentence because the next sentence is super controversial. Okay. Verse 21, five, uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 21. Submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Now, second sentence, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you love your wives? Anybody died on a cross for your wife recently? Do you love your wife like Christ loved the church? Dang, it's a high standard. So Christ in the church, that that bridegroom language, it's used often in scripture. Look, here's the thing. Christ describes his relationship with the church. The, The metaphor is that of a marriage. Marriage is a symbol of the church's relationship to Christ. I referenced Song of Songs earlier. There's actually uh, two ways to read the Song of Songs. I think the primary way is as erotic Jewish love poetry. But the, the secondary way to read the Song of Songs, the way that an ancient Jewish reader would have read that, is of a picture of God's love for us. Don't let that get too weird. Intimacy. Desire passion. This is the way God loves us like a beloved. Does God not say this about you? You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And you're like, there's all kinds of flaws in me. God says there is no flaw in you. He looks at you through the lens of Jesus' perfect life. And he says, you're altogether beautiful. There's no flaw in you. You get where I'm going with this double meaning. The Song of Songs, our our marriages are are a picture of the Christ relationship with the church. So back to sex. I I know, you knew I was going to get back there. So sex is good when it's part of a marriage. 
the guys are going to crucify me at man morning next week. I know it. there's going to be so many jokes made about you. So sex is actually a good thing when it's part of a marriage, right? The medieval church, I'm told that's about the time frame. The early church like totally embraced this idea, but the medieval church, they made it, they made sex bad because of the propensity for sex to get misused, right? But misuse doesn't mean that you don't use something, right? There's a lot of good things that we've been given, like carbs, carbs, really pizza crust, right? Who's for eating pizza crust? Don't, don't give me these keto people. Where's Noah? I just compared carbs to sex. Anyways, um, misuse doesn't mean no use. It means right use. The sex drive is a drive for intimacy that mirrors or points to our ultimate desire for intimacy with God. Here's a, a bit of a truth bomb for you this morning. The Bible uses sexual union as a metaphor or a pointer to our intimacy with God. Relationship, true intimacy with God is like perfect sexual intimacy. Wow. I'm going to start reading my Bible more now. Is it any wonder the sex drive is so powerful? If this is what it's meant to image, to represent, is it any wonder we're such a sexual culture? I got another fact. This is coming up in the book of Matthew. Do you know that Jesus taught that marriage will dissolve in eternity? This is really sad to me. I often think, like, I hope there's football in, you know, the new earth. I hope there's whatever else. Sex would probably be, like, second on the list. Well, first on the list, sorry, if I'm being honest. We're going we're gonna to get there, but, but if this is true, that Jesus taught that marriage will dissolve in eternity, um, why would that be? Why? I thought things were supposed to return to the Garden of Eden in eternity with, with God. But here's the thing. Who will we be married to? in the new earth, on the new earth, in eternity. Who will we be married to? Jesus. This is powerful. In the presence of God, when you have full intimacy with God, full right standing with God, sex isn't even something, the absence of sex is not even something that we'll like bemoan. Just like, look, I'm with God. Intimacy, pleasure, reciprocal, mutual love. That's amazing. Dang, I want it. So sex is a good thing, but it's not a God thing. Our ultimate longings can only and always be fulfilled in an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. The longing for sex is just a pointer to our ultimate fulfillment in the one who can fulfill all our desires, our Heavenly Father. The third point is that marriage is inseparable. This leads us to the topic of divorce. I'm going to talk more in depth about this next week. Jesus ends by saying, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Jesus' words here, they're, they're equal parts, I believe, command and prophetic blessing. So command, therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. 
blessing, what God has put together, no man will be able to separate. Look, and I just, again, just to acknowledge the pain and the heartache that some of us have walked through in relationship to divorce. I mean, I think nobody gets married planning on ending in divorce. Like nobody does. Is divorce like God's design? No. But how many other things happen in our world that are also not part of God's design? God knows the pain and the reality that we suffer because of the consequences of sin. And I just, I wanted to end our time this morning by uh, praying for our married couples. Um, I'm looking around. I don't think that, well, there's some singles. The kids are single. Um, Bruce is single, I suppose. We, we got you in two weeks, Bruce. Uh, you'll be in Israel, darn it. But I wanted to end our time by praying for our married couples. I, I think I, I, what I wanted to do was like speak a prophetic blessing over your marriage. God's desire that what God has joined together, no one can separate. Did you know that 50% of marriages end in divorce? 50%. Like, imagine your marriage, flip a coin, whether it's going to make it or not. 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's really hard to stay married. And some of us have tried and been unable. Some of us are trying, and maybe someday we'll, we'll find out that we're unable. Like, I don't have much to tell you. Like, what's the, ma- what's the magic for staying married? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. All I, all I can do is encourage you to keep fighting for your marriage, to stop fighting about your marriage and to start fighting for your marriage. And uh, you guys, you know the song that we sing here uh, sometimes. It's, it's got that phrase, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees. How about we start fighting for our marriages on our knees before God? If you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse, would you guys stand this morning? I want to pray for you. You don't have to come forward or anything like that. I just want you to stand. Would you, would you mind standing? Meg, you could stand right here next to me. I know some of you, your spouse isn't here. It's okay. We're praying for you too. If you want to stand also, go ahead and stand. Let me, let me just pray. We're going to end this morning. We'll, we'll, um, we'll receive uh, the uh, communion here. But I, I wanted to end this morning by praying this prayer of blessing over you guys. Man, I know marriage is not easy. We believe in God's design for it. And we're fighting for that because sometimes it doesn't feel true. Am I right? Sometimes it, God, it's, it does not feel true at times. So we've we got to fight together. We're going to pray together for our marriages this morning. Let me, let me just shut up and pray. Lord, thank you for um, our spouses, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you know what we need. We sometimes don't think that you know, but you knew, and you gave us what we needed, Lord. I pray you'd help us to receive our spouse as your good gift to us, Lord. And God, there's a, there's a war against uh, our marriages. The enemy is attacking from all angles. He's attacking the institution of marriage. He's attacking our individual marriages in all kinds of different ways, Lord. And so I just, I pray for protection right now. Would you cover these people with your protection? You said, What God has put together, let no man separate. And I pray, Lord, 
that you would keep these two together. I pray that you would give us courage to continue to fight, not about our marriage, not with one another, but for our marriage. Would you help us to forgive one another over and over and over again? Would you give us new mercies each morning for one another, Lord? God, we long to be marriages that represent your love to the world. Would you make our marriages a testimony to the world around us, Lord? Lord, would you give peace where there's, where there's marriages that are enduring conflict and fighting. Lord, I ask that you bring peace. Even now, miraculously, Lord, like sometimes, Father, we don't know any of the answers. We need a miracle to come and change our way of being. And I just, I pray right now, you could do it, God. Would you therapy us this morning, Lord? Would you heal us, God? Would you bring your peace and lastly, Lord, I pray that, that these marriages would be fruitful, that they would multiply, not just in kids, Lord, though we are thankful for kids. But I pray that the call that you've put on our lives as married couples would be fruitful, that you'd give us success as we work together to tend the garden of our lives. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your help. We thank you for your power. Lord, and we thank you that even, even as now things are rarely as they should be, we can look forward to the day in hope that all will be made well. It's in this hope we pray this morning, Jesus. Amen.